In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, resurrected King, we believe that you are risen, that you resurrected, that you rose from the grave. And we thank you for the hope that you give us that one day, too, we will rise from the grave through you and with you and in you. Help us to meditate on this greatest of miracles and to be filled with faith and hope in the power of your resurrection. Mother Mary, we crown you the queen of our meditation this morning as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's turn to John's Gospel, chapter 20. Verse 11, John 20, 11. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and said to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. So I think it's worth just pausing there for a moment. What a tender moment. What a beautiful moment for Mary Magdalene to be the first of the disciples to see Jesus. It's not in the Gospels. We have to assume that he appeared to Mary, his mother, first. (laughs) And that's a beautiful meditation. If you've never done that, I would highly recommend that. Just imagine that first encounter between Jesus and Mary. But pious tradition definitely says that he appeared to his mother first. I've read one mystical account where he even had her come into the tomb with him or something like that. And like she got to walk out of the tomb with him. So that's a beautiful contemplation in and of itself. But since none of us get to do that, Jesus, I think, 
goes to, sh he shows how much he appreciated Mary Magdalene and her faithfulness. I think that's something, again, that it's, it's a tender thought, and it's one that the Lord wants us to uh, receive for ourselves, that God appreciates any faithfulness on our part, and he likes to reward that. And, of course, Mary Magdalene went all the way to the cross, right? She was there standing along with the mother of Jesus and St. John, the evangelist. John is the only one, incidentally, who writes this particular account of Mary Magdalene with such detail. So you can bet Mary Magdalene was like, ah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, come on. You think I'm going to tell you? Where were you? You bums, yeah? <clears throat> I'm going to tell John. So John had that privilege. So the funny thing is, Mary just runs to the tomb with absolutely no idea about how she's going to move that stone, right? That, that boulder that probably took four Roman soldiers to budge. You know, and she's going there, and she's got a few other ladies with her, maybe, but they were probably like, Mary, how are we going to move that boulder? She's like, I don't know, but I just got to go. I just got to go to the tomb. I just got to be, just got to be with him as close as I can. And so she was just motivated by love. Last night we talked about not being uh ruled by or affected by the fear of man or the you know, fear of failure, any kind of fear. So this is a beautiful example of that. Mary Magdalene not being governed by fear or rationalization, you know, because <laughs> it was a perfectly legitimate question. Well, what about that boulder? I don't care. We'll figure it out. Something will happen. And again, God rewarded her faith, her trust. It's interesting how these different people don't recognize Jesus. In Luke's gospel, we read about the disciples on the road to Emmaus and how they were literally walking along with Jesus for miles, hours, and they didn't recognize him. I have my own interpretation of that especially with those two. Like they were so focused on their own idea and their own agenda. And in a sense, they were focusing on what in their minds didn't happen that they couldn't even recognize Jesus who was walking along with them for hours. <clears throat> Father Martunic really liked that, so I'm kind of proud of that. <laughs> He even decided to put that homily on his RC Spirituality website. You know? I think it must have spoken to him in some way. But it's true, isn't it? We can get so focused sometimes on what's not happening, something that we want to happen. And, you know, it could be a very good thing, too. Don't get me wrong. But nevertheless, it's not happening. But we get so fixated on that that we miss Jesus walking by over and over again, right in front of our faces. So I, I, think, I think there's something to that. And even with Mary, like, 
not that she didn't want to see Jesus, but like for her, the fact that he had risen from this tomb, that he had somehow gotten out of there alive, was really unthinkable. Really unthinkable. So it's like, <laughs> who could this guy be? And then, of course, he was resurrected, and he had some kind of a glorified body then. So I'm sure that's pretty amazing. So I'm sure he did look somewhat different, right? But nevertheless, I think it's just a great thing for us to contemplate and, and to ask the Lord for the grace to just really have eyes of faith now. Now we know that he's risen and he can break through the grave, you know, he can rise and he can walk through walls and really there's nothing he can't do. This is the miracle of miracles. I mentioned that in my prayer. But it really is the miracle of miracles. And it was the only miracle that he predicted, according to scholars, you know, I never really studied it. I just read it. But throughout the Gospels, he said, you know, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem's up on a hill. So they always said, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be condemned to death by the, you know, the authorities. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. But on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And everyone must what does that mean? That's never happened before. <laughs> but he predicted it all throughout the Gospels. And he did it. You know, so in a sense, it confirms his message. Even in his public ministry, he would say from time to time, you know, if you don't believe me, well, believe the works that I'm doing. Have you ever seen somebody do the works that I'm doing? So you don't, if you don't take me for my word, let the signs, let the miracles be a sign for you that what I'm saying is true. And so the real test was, okay, well, is he really going to die and rise from the dead? And he did. How many of you have been to the tomb? All right, a few of you. So sometime, you know, put it on your bucket list, right? <laughs> they even let uh, 15 pilgrims a night spend the night in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So I've been there. Uh, I stayed the night one time where I got to uh, spend, you know, some long periods of time in the tomb by myself or with just a couple of other people, which is really quite an experience. So, you know, I can tell you the tomb is empty. Yes, it is. <laughs> but if you think about it, that was one of the proofs, right? That no bones were ever found, and there was this empty tomb, which over the centuries has been destroyed and rebuilt in a sense, but they're very, very certain of the spot itself. In fact, when National Geographic did a documentary not too long ago, uh, they were uh, pretty freaked out by some of the things that they were discovering about that spot as they were, they had to refurbish the whole structure around the tomb and they were getting all sorts of interesting readings, I guess, from their different instruments about the activity 
going on around that place. So it's a powerful place. And that's uh, something that we see in the Shroud of Turin, too, right? It's a modern-day relic, if you will. I mean, I think that's, you could say that's the relic of relics, right? The, the Shroud. And the church has never said that this is absolutely, you know, they don't have to, really, right? I mean, as I like to say, people will believe what they want to believe at the end of the day. But now it's so interesting, isn't it, that with modern technology, we just learn more and more about the Shroud. Same thing with Our Lady of Guadalupe, the, the Tilma. We learn more and more about these cloths uh, as science gets more and more advanced. And it, it, it's just unbelievable. And, and, you know, some scientists have postulated, you know, theorized, like, what could have left this kind of mark on this kind of cloth? And they, you know, they say the amount of energy it would have taken to leave this mark, but it would have had to flash in the smallest, you know, fraction of a second. And we still don't have that technology today. We're only, you know, postulating what might do it, how it might happen. But we have no explanation for what really happened here. So the power of the resurrection, that, I say that just because it's a neat thing to just ponder, oh my gosh, the amount of energy, the amount of power that it took for him to, and in the just, you know, slightest fraction of a second for him to, for him to just burst out of those, out of that cloth, that burial cloth, and to stand, you know, resurrected. Uh, and then to walk out of the tomb, you know, just to walk right through the, I mean, it talks about an earthquake and everything else, too. So that's very possible. That it could have been the earthquake that moved the rock for him. Like, eh, thank you very much, Mother Earth. Yeah, I'm just going to walk out now, you know. Thanks, Dad. You know, like, hey, Dad, all right, yeah, gotcha, you know. No problem, son. I got your back here, you know. So that gives us a lot of hope that, yeah, the death doesn't have the final word. And I know we didn't have a lot of time to meditate on heaven and how, you know, they call it the, the last things, the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. We didn't have time to reflect on that so much, but the fact is, we said we're not created for this world. We're created for heaven. And if you haven't listened much to near-death experiences, I encourage you to do it. I've been on a, I was on a little kick some months ago, listening to, and not even Catholic ones per se, uh, but most people do come back Christians if they weren't <laughs> when they died. That's for sure. And yeah, just some amazing testimonies of, of amazing details that people experience when they're in heaven. And so uh, it's just a place of absolute beauty and goodness and rest and love. You know, there's no more pain there. There's no more strife or struggling. 
There's no more suffering of any kind. <clears throat> and, and everyone comes back saying, oh my gosh, I mean, the amount of love I felt as I encountered the light, maybe they didn't even see Jesus face to face, but they just came into his light. And they're like, it's just, you know, people with kids even, you know, even people with newborns or, you know, little kids who haven't really upset them yet, right? <laughs> they're like, I couldn't even think of my kids. Like, it was, I was just so enraptured by this divine love. I, I didn't want to come back. I could have cared less if I came back. And they're like, I know that sounds terrible, but, like, it was just so overwhelming. something literally out of this world, right? And so it really helps to think about that from time to time, right? I mean, it's why Ignatius put it into the spiritual exercises for sure. Uh, but, it, you know, every Sunday in a sense, I don't think we really get this when we go to Mass on Sundays, but every Sunday is a solemnity, which means it's the highest celebration on the church calendar. So, you know, that's why if, like, October 1st, the Feast of St. Therese is, falls on a Sunday, well, we don't celebrate St. Therese on a Sunday then. I mean, you can still celebrate it, but at least the readings and the prayers are not going to be for St. Therese. She gets trumped <laughs> by Jesus and by the resurrection, because every Sunday is really meant to celebrate the resurrection, It's interesting, right, that it was the first day of the week, but it was also the eighth day, right? So it's like a new creation, a new creation. Because for the Jews, Sunday was not the beginning of the week, right? So it was like the eighth day. It was a new creation. And so every time we go to Mass, especially on Sunday, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to just meditate on the fact that, hey, we're celebrating the resurrection here. We're celebrating the fact that we now have eternal life. We're celebrating the fact that there is, you know, that I have a place in the Father's house that Jesus has prepared for me. And I was listening to this one account recently, and this guy who had died as a boy, he actually, he, he hadn't even died. He, he just went to heaven. Jesus kind of just lifted him up. And he said Jesus brought him to this guy's house. He's like, I didn't know who the guy was, but Jesus obviously knew him. But he said his house was literally decorated the way this guy liked it decorated. It reflected his own interests on earth and his own, you know, and he had pictures of loved ones who were still on earth. So if you wonder about that, you know, does my dad or my grandpa or my, you know, some loved one that's already dead, do they ever think about me? Absolutely. They have your picture on their wall in their house in heaven. You know? So, yeah. And, and other pictures, perhaps, of people who have already made it to heaven as well. But he said when he, when he uh, sat on this guy's couch, because he had a couch, he's like, the couch was unlike any couch I had ever sat on before. It literally, it literally conformed to my skeletal structure. So it was the most comfortable couch I'd ever sat on. And it looked plain enough but it was as if the, the couch was alive. 
He said, and then I was an eight-year-old boy, so I was trying to play with it to see if it could keep up with my <laughs> movements, you know? So I was totally distracted by the couch. I didn't really follow what Jesus was saying. But he's like, yeah, it would follow me as I moved. So he, and he's like, everything in heaven is alive, or it, it seems as if it's alive. That it, it somehow, like, emits life. The grass, the flowers. And he said, you know, the colors are so much more brilliant in heaven, and there's so many more colors. He's like, when you come back to earth, you think this is like black and white compared to heaven. It's so vibrant, you know, which comes from the word, right, vivir, to live, right, life, live. So, yeah, when we say that word vibrant, you know, heaven is so much more vibrant than earth. Some of you have heard me tell this story about my dad, but as he was dying, he was, you know, whatever, a little confused, right? He's like, am I dead yet? I'm like, no, Dad, you know, when you die, you're going to be more fully alive than you've ever been before. And it's so true. And that's what the people all say, too. They're like, oh, my gosh, you know, this life, I mean, it's compared to heaven. I mean, heaven, we're just so much more alive. We're so much more aware of everything. So much more sensitive to all of the good and all of the truth, and, and all of the beauty. So, something to look forward to, right? And it's really worth reflecting on, right? Because, of course, it's sad when our loved ones go. You know, I miss my dad, yeah, but, I mean, I, in a sense, I, I can be close to my dad now, like at every Mass or... You know, during my ministry, I invoke his presence, his prayers. And I, I know he's with me, and I, I know he's not suffering from cancer anymore. You know, he doesn't have to get up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom how knows how many times, right? So, I mean, so I know he's happy, and he's still involved in my life. And, you know, these are, you know, these aren't just fantasies you know these aren't fantasies this is this is what we believe right so we have to foster that faith we have to cultivate that faith because you know this life it's it's not very long but it's hard you know i know we all suffer in different ways uh, it's a valley of tears as we pray in the Salve Regina. So that also gives us a lot of hope, knowing that, you know, I really don't care what I have to go through here. It doesn't really matter because I know I'm not living for this life. I'm not living for this life. Not that we can't enjoy this life or that we shouldn't enjoy it. But all of the pleasures here in this life, as good as they are, are just like previews of coming attractions. You know, they're appetizers. They're just foreshadowing. John Paul II would, you know, even call like marriage, the marriage and the marital embrace, he would call that an icon of the inner life of the Trinity. So all of these things that we experience here that are good and true and beautiful, they're just 
pointing us to an even greater reality. So, I mean, we should enjoy the things that God gives us here without becoming uh, attached to them in a disordered way because we know that they're just not going to last. Nor are we going to last forever. So I think if we can foster that regular reflection about the resurrection and heaven, then we can interact with people and things with a lot more peace. I know this priest whose dad, when the, he's a legionary priest, and when, it, when he was growing up, his dad, when they'd be driving around town, and if he, if he ever like, came across a funeral procession, he would say, look there, son. There's no U-Haul on the back of that hearse. Can't take it with you. <laughs> You might think, oh, that's a morbid thought. <laughs> but, you know, he remembered it, and he's a priest today. You know, he could have done a lot of other things, that's for sure. But he wasn't living for those things. He grew up with some kind of perspective that those things aren't the most important thing. So it's, it's the relationships, right? It's the love that we share here on earth that we will take up, that we will take to heaven. At funerals, I like to remind people there's, there's no more faith in heaven because that which you had to believe without seeing here on earth is now seen. And there's no hope in heaven because that which you hoped for is now realized. <laughs> So, as Paul says, there's only one thing that remains, and that's love. So I'd like to remind the people, too, who are, who are obviously sad, and, and rightfully so, at a funeral, but the bonds of love that you formed during your loved one's time on earth, they now extend into eternity. They're not broken. The bonds of love are no longer broken by death. So that's why, you know, my relationship with my dad, it's not, it's not over, <laughs> It's changed, yes, obviously. But we've all had to say goodbye to people in our lives, right, at different times. We've had to let go of certain relationships, even with social media today and all of the modern technology, right? I mean, I guess it's a little bit easier, but let's face it, I mean, can't keep up with everybody, right? So, but, but my relationship with my dad is not, it's not done. It's not over, but it's changed, yes. But it continues in faith and hope and love. And I think the more you foster that, like I try to do, you know, the more real it becomes, even now. You know, they like... I like to say anyway, the veil is very thin. You know, the veil between this life and the next is very thin. And I'm sure you've all had different encounters in one way or another with those who have, you know, passed on or 
or even angels or saints or, you know, God himself really manifesting his presence, his power in a particular way. So I think the more we pay attention to that, the more we foster that, the lot more, you know, we can have so much more peace as we face life's difficulties and disappointments. I love these next verses here in John's Gospel where he breaks into the upper room. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. So they were scared. They were there behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. So Jesus came and walked right through the door, the locked door, and peace be with you. So the Lord wants to give us his peace. It's, it's, I think it's very indicative. This is the first thing he's giving them when he walks through the door. I think it's something that he definitely wants to give to all of us. One of the greatest gifts that he can give, and as he said at the Last Supper, you know, my peace, I give you a peace that the world cannot give. Right? We say that at every Mass. The priest, I pray that at every Mass. So, the gift of peace is, is that. It's a gift. We said that on opening night, right? That there's no man-made peace. There's no man-made happiness. There's no true happiness that is man-made. Or lasting happiness, anyway. Same thing with peace. There's no lasting peace. There's no true peace that's man-made. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you, give, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So there he's giving authority to... Forgive sins. That's a really good biblical foundation for the sacrament of reconciliation and confession. So it's like a special charism that he was giving them in that moment that apparently he didn't give at the Last Supper. He must not have gotten into that. Let's just look briefly at the end of Mark's gospel. Mark 16. 
we might as well look at verse 9 there. Mark 16, 9. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. So there it is. There it is. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. See that? They wouldn't believe it. Who are you, crazy lady? Who do you think you are? After this, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest. But they did not believe them either, you could say. <laughs> Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they sat at table. And he upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, this is like the great commissioning now. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news, to the whole creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. Not just priests, not just nuns or religious or especially gifted people. It makes no qualifying statement here, right? These signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. So again, I, I go back to Mary, Dr. Mary Healy and Encounter Ministries. They're very quick to point that out. So just as the apostles needed this special gift, the early church especially needed these gifts to, to evangelize to a pre-Christian world. So in a sense today, we need these signs to preach to a post-Christian world. I think it's even harder. We have it harder today in a sense because... Today, people are really cynical when you mention Jesus as a rule. You know? So we're not just dealing with unbelief. We're dealing with cynicism and, and people who have been really hurt by the church, abused by the church, and, and people representing the church. So that's why I have even greater hope that as much as the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost, which we can look at here in a second, you know, I think there's an even greater outpouring of the Spirit that is soon to come. Different you know, mystics, both Catholic and non-Catholic Christians, uh, are talking about it and have talked about it. You know, saints who are canonized have talked about this new springtime. Mother Mary at Fatima talked about the triumph of her immaculate heart and an era of peace. So there's been a lot of talk about you know, a great revival, a great harvest 
That's how the, a lot of these evangelicals say it. Yeah, there's going to be like a billion-person harvest. I think it's going to be five billion, you know? So just as the Lord poured out the Spirit on the early church, I think there's a great outpouring of the Spirit that is soon to come that will enable the church to, to evangelize like never before. So let's look at that quick. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So just a thing to think about. Had they already received the Holy Spirit? Yes. We just read that in John's Gospel. (laughs) Right after the resurrection, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. He gave them a special gift, as I said at that moment, to forgive sins. A special charism for priests to forgive sins. But they had already been baptized, they had already been ordained priests, and they had already received the Eucharist at the Last Supper. So had they already received the Holy Spirit? Yes. Yes. But what was Pentecost about? Pentecost was about equipping them to share this gift that they had received, to spread the good news. So there's a bit of a shift here. Again, we don't have a lot of time. We just are really praying about this here this morning, but we already touched on it a little bit last night when Jesus gave the new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So we receive from the Lord. We have this friendship with the Lord, this intimacy with the Lord, but it can't stop there. So that is not the only goal of our lives. It's not the only purpose of our lives is to have intimacy with God. Because God himself is love and love is dynamic. We talked about that a little bit. The dynamic of God's dynamic love. Love is dynamic by virtue of its definition. Love wills the good of the other as other. The lover loves the beloved for the sake of the beloved. And so there's necessarily a a self-giving of the lover to the beloved. So if God is love, he is necessarily giving himself to us, his beloved children, for our good, for our good. You know, so true love doesn't ask, well, what's in this for me? Or how long is this going to take? <laughs> right? That's not a question that love asks. Jesus obviously didn't ask that question from the cross, right? How long am I going to have to hang here? How much is this going to hurt? You know? 
so, so we get brought into that dynamic. We get brought into that love. We get baptized, plunged, immersed. That's what baptism means, right? To be plunged or immersed, soaked. We get drenched with the love of God and the spirit of God at our baptism. And we mature in that faith, in that relationship with him. But then as we mature, he asks us to then participate even more actively in this dynamic, to actually go out and represent him <laughs> to the world. Go and represent me now. Make me proud. Make your papa proud, you know? But it, it, it's, it's not something that we feel as a burden. It shouldn't be a burden. It shouldn't be, oh, I have to do this. No, but it should flow, as I've said all weekend, from the relationship, from our identity. From the intimacy flows the activity. But if we try to identify ourselves by our activity, then we're going to burn out. We're going to crash and burn. And that's upside down. We don't define ourselves. But rather we receive all of this good stuff from the Lord. We're forgiven. We're blessed. We're raised up. We're formed. We're shaped. We're transformed. And then he says, okay, now you go and share this good news. Go love on other people as I have loved on you. So that's, that's what Pentecost was all about. That's what Pentecost was all about. Receiving this power, which they needed, because, you know, they were behind locked doors. They were pretty scared. They were intimidated. They're like, eh, what are we going to do without you, Lord? How are we going to do this? Like I said, imagine them at the ascension. Oh, no. Oh, no. I mean, we got to listen to Peter, this guy? Oh, man, we are in trouble. Holy smokes. We are really in trouble. You know? I mean, we've heard the story so many times, we forget that they were human beings too, right? Like, Really, Lord? Oh. So God knew they needed all of these gifts to make it work. And is God a control freak? Absolutely not, right? I mean, look at what he did. Look at what he did with his church. Look at the people he entrusted his church to. Of course, his mother was there, and he trusted his mom for sure, right? She's like, all right, mom, you better you know, keep these guys in order, right? <laughs> I feel sorry for you. You thought standing at the cross was hard. Man, you know. But even Mary needed more, if that's possible. I mean, yeah, she was full of grace, but now, like, her role was expanding. Right? Isn't that safe to say? Her role was expanding. Her mission was taking on a new scope. Right? Isn't that safe to say? So even the Blessed Virgin Mary needed more. So I think as you enter new seasons of your life, which we all do, as you enter into new seasons, into new opportunities, you know, you need more. You need more. 
Because as we, you know, I have to turn my page two, three times. So as I turn the page three times, but that's only because I have all these notes. But in chapter four, so just two chapters later, so Acts 4.23, they're asking for more. Why? Because now they were being met with persecution. Not everybody was very happy about this good news. Some people, in fact, were threatened by it and were very angry. So Peter and John had been arrested. Uh, here, if you look before in the earlier verses there. Um, so they were brought before the council, the Sadducees and the rulers and elders in verse 5. And scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had sent them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, by what means this man has been healed, be it known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, by the way, whom God raised from the dead, by the way, by him this man is standing before you well. I mean, Peter must have just been, you know, <laughs> sticking his tongue out at him, like, yeah, take that, smoke it, put it in your pipe and smoke it. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, by which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they wondered and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man that had been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. You see that? There was living proof. There was, there was a sign, a living, walking sign that just days before was not walking. They all recognized him as the cripple who would be laying on the street near the temple. And now he is standing and walking. And they couldn't argue with that. They couldn't argue with that. You see this, the purpose of signs and wonders and why God wants signs and wonders in his church? Right there. Because even the educated, you know, smarty pants couldn't argue with that. So now if we want to fast forward to verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together, together, to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who by the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples imagine vain things? 
the kings of the earth set themselves in array and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. They needed more. And their prayer was answered because they were praying together. They were united. It's very important. They were united and they were praying together. They were united in this mission. They had this common purpose. And they knew it wasn't going to be easy. They knew it wasn't going to be easy and they were going to need courage. They were going to need boldness. They were going to need fortitude. But even then, what was the ultimate sign, in a sense, that all but one of the apostles gave? Their life. They were all martyred. You know, which, again, is a pretty convincing sign, right? As people have commented, you know, ah, you might, you know, lay down your life for a good guy, maybe, you know, maybe a loved one, you know, you would lay down your life, but... Would you lay down your life for a story, for a, you know, a made-up story? And those stories and those bones we have. You know, we've got Peter's bones, we've got Paul's skull, you know, and all these other early martyrs, we've got we've got their relics. And we've got those stories pretty well recorded. And even you know, down to our day, we've got people still being martyred, laying down their lives in imitation of Christ. So again, it's, it's good to remember these things. That's, I mean, in that sense, the saints can inspire us. The martyrs especially can inspire us. And, and can increase our faith, can increase our faith, and can give us strength. They can uh, give us, you know, graces come through that, even as we said yesterday, Ignatius of Loyola, when he was convalescing and reading the lives of the saints, and he was reading, I mean, Dominic and Francis, they weren't even martyred. I'm sure he read other stories of those who were martyred, but those stories, those heroic lives inspire us. And 
Yeah, I think the Lord wants to raise up a new generation of saints. I mean, that's what the church, you know, any real revival, any real, uh, yeah, I mean, when it's like any real reform, you think about the reform of the Carmelites, for example. In the Middle Ages there, it was John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila that led the reform of the Carmelites. John of the Cross was imprisoned, in a sense, by his own brothers in religious life. His, bro- his Carmelite brothers hated him. They thought he was a nut job, you know. <clears throat> He's a doctor of the church now. So I don't know where they are, but... <laughs> and then Teresa of Avila, you know. She lived a very mediocre life. If you've never read her story, it's worth reading. She led a very mediocre life, even inside of the monastery, into her 40s, if I'm not mistaken. And then it was in her early 40s where she had this awakening. And then her heart was transformed. I think she came from a pretty privileged background, if I remember correctly. And she was like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good, you know. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable. I enjoy my life here inside the monastery. It's all good. The Lord's like, boy, girl, you were made for so much more than that. You know? And she was like, whoa. And, and that's, you know, we all have those moments in a sense. I had one when I was 20, you know, when I first felt called to the priesthood. You know, and, and you, you disqualify yourself. You think, ah, oh, that's not for me. You know, who am I? But that's not God talking. That's the enemy talking. I once heard this sermon by Bishop T. T. J. Jakes. He's not a Catholic bishop. He calls himself a bishop. Bishop Jakes, you know, he's this big African-American guy, you know. But I really liked what he said, you know. Sometimes the devil has a better idea of God's plan for you than you do. And that's why he attacks you so much. Because he doesn't want you to get off the ground. You know, if you're like an airplane, you know, you're you're there on the runway. And the devil doesn't want you to take off because he knows that's really bad news for him. So he does everything he can to distract you from even getting on the plane, right? And it may be with a lot of good stuff. We can do a lot of good things, but maybe it's really not what God is calling us to do, you know, and to be. So I say it all the time, but so often we sell God so short, but we sell ourselves short in the process. Again, the image that we have of God is the image that we have of ourselves. So if we're selling God short, we sell ourselves short. And we put God in a box. Oh, God would never want me to do that. God would never ask me to do that. Well, how do you know? Are you playing God now? (laughs) You know? I recently had God say that to me. He's like, don't put me in a box. Why why are you putting me in a box for? I can ask you to do whatever I want. You know, I might have a certain experience or, you know, a certain comfort level with doing something, one thing. So why would God ask me to do that? Because he's God, you know. And he wants his power to shine through our weakness. He wants his, and, and in the preface, in the Mass for the Martyrs, 
it always says that. Pay attention to that the next time you go to a mass in memory of a martyr, the preface right before the you know, Eucharistic prayer. It references, in so many words, God's power shining through their human weakness. Especially when you think of you know, martyrs who are children. So, God doesn't want us to rely on ourselves and our own experience, our own education. He doesn't want us to rely on that. Not that he wouldn't ask you to get educated in one thing or another. But I don't think the Blessed Virgin Mary had a PhD in theology. (laughs) I don't think Mother Teresa had a PhD in in theology. I don't think she had a medical degree of any kind. Now, some saints were very educated people, obviously, but it's not a precondition. It's not a precondition. St. Therese, a little flower, entered the convent at 15. She's a doctor of the church, and she did definitely not have a PhD in theology. But she's a doctor of the church today. Go figure, right? So, again, and that's what, I, I think that's why Therese is so attractive to so many people, because she was so little, in a sense, and yet she, she always, you know, or very often... <laughs> allowed God and the Holy Spirit to just keep expanding her heart. And she didn't repress her desires. She even had a desire to be a priest. She knew that wasn't what God was asking her to do, but she still had a desire to be a priest, to be a missionary. So within the context, you know, of of her situation, she allowed her heart and and her mind to expand her horizons of prayer to the point where her prayer encompassed you know, more and more people all the time. And I, I think that's something we can learn from as well. God may not ask you to change jobs or you know, professions or you know, move to Africa or anything like that, right? But even within your daily life, how can God transform your daily life in many ways? God can transform your daily life in many ways if you allow him. You know, I've already had people come to me and tell me how in the last couple of years, you know, the music they listen to now, they're like, yeah, I just listen to praise and worship music now. I don't even really listen to anything else and my kids are singing these songs now and it's just one little example right but but that has a ripple effect because there's grace moving there you know, and, and the devil hates holy music you know be it praise and worship be a Gregorian chant be it whatever any kind of music that honors God in any way like do you think demons want to hang around and hear that you know, hell no, right? <laughs> so, so they are driven away by that. <clears throat> a friend of mine who's uh, 
in deliverance ministry, and he's like, even the ringing of a bell, you know, how we ring the bells at mass, or the, the church bells, that drives away evil spirits. The church bells drive away evil spirits. The ringing of the bells at mass drive away evil spirits. Spirits of, what do you think? Distraction, right? Doubt. Right? So, you know, there's, there's power. God acts through all of these means. Through song, through, you know, every, we're human beings, right? We need uh, images, right? We need things to touch and see and taste and smell. You know, all the smells and bells, right? I mean, we joke about it, all the holy smoke. But let's face it, right? I mean, we're, we're more locked in when those things are happening, right? But what do we do? Uh, we took all the statues out of the church. We removed the beautiful stained glass for these weird-looking glass shapes, you know? No more bells, no more, you know, sacred music, you know, like we used to have, and no more candles, no more altar boys, and all this kind of stuff, right? And it's like, and we wonder, right? We wonder. How did we get to 2020? Well, little by little, you know? Little by little. You take those things away, and what are you left with? You know? You're left with uh, a minimalism. You're left with the bare minimum. And, and so then we adopt that same mentality with regards to our own lives, right? And so you go to Mass, and you have this bare minimum experience. So then why would I be inspired by that bare minimum experience to go out and be a saint, right? So, again, how do we prioritize our, you know, our talent, our time, our treasure, our focus, But, you know, when I was an associate pastor in Atlanta, I kept advocating. I'm like, that Sunday experience has, I mean, we got to knock it out of the park every Sunday. It's the only time we have most of these people. And we got to knock it out of the park. So we got to have a great music ministry, which we didn't have at the time, necessarily. It was getting better, that's for sure. But just there hadn't been a whole lot of thought or a whole lot of money invested or time invested into it, right? And then the preaching and, you know, the decor, everything, right? The, the people greeting you as you walk in, everything. You know, it's, it's just got to be inviting. It's got to be inspiring. It's got to be true, good, and beautiful, right? And then we might actually start producing some saints, you know? We might actually inspire somebody to do something, you know, extraordinary. So... But I, and, I, and I know many of you have, you know, tried to do certain things and met with, you know, rejection. We'll keep trying, you know, because God honors whatever efforts we do make. Because that's another, I think that's another temptation that we can fall into. Good people can fall into this temptation. Well, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? Well, it does make a difference. It does actually make a difference. Even if you meet with rejection, remember I told that story yesterday about my friend who said, oh, I, I feel called to, to call up the parish and ask if I can help with youth ministry. Do it. I mean, they might say no, but that doesn't mean that God wasn't giving you that inspiration 
or that there's no merit in obeying that inspiration and making the call and making the effort. There is merit in that. There is grace in that. And it does make a difference. But again, if we always have this mentality that's strictly horizontal in a sense, worldly, and if we're always just looking for results that are measurable and, well, we're going to be disappointed for sure. You know, Jesus, looking at Jesus hanging from the cross was probably pretty disappointing for most people, you know. Jesus buried in the tomb was probably disappointing for a lot of people. But then we can look to Mary, the humble maiden, (laughs) the humble handmaid of the Lord. She wasn't disappointed. She was sorrowful for sure, right? She was sad. But even as she was watching her son ripped to pieces, literally, she knew that this was not going to be the end of the story. And she wasn't even bitter about it. Imagine. She wasn't even bitter. You know? That's hard for a mom, right? (laughs) That would be really hard for a mom. You can just stop and think about that for a second. What if you watched your son or daughter ripped to pieces by a group of people? Would you be bitter towards that? <laughs> but she wasn't. Why? How, how was that possible? Because she had faith. You know, she believed her son was the son of God and that this was necessary, in a sense, to save us. He was saving us. And she always believed that he was going to save us even those people who were crucifying him. At least he wanted to. He was doing all he could to save us, to save them. So, as we prepare for Mass this morning, we're going to renew our baptismal vows and pray for a fresh outpouring of the Spirit at Mass today. And as I've told some people, you know, you may not have tongues of fire rest on your head today at Mass. You might. That would be pretty cool. You know, there might be a rushing wind, you know, blow through the chapel. But, you know, maybe not. But just know that God is at work. Even if there isn't any particular visible sign in the moment. For me, it often happens when I'm driving home from the retreat all by myself in the car. And then all of a sudden it hits me, wow, you know, and I'm just starting to bawl in the car there. I'm just like, whoa, my gosh, Lord, wow. So sometimes it's a delayed reaction. So don't be disappointed if, you know, we don't see any tongues of fire come to rest, you know, on your head. Or if you don't fall over or something like that or speak in tongues or whatever. So... Just know that, but keep praying, right? Keep asking for more. Because God will give, I think, in the measure that we ask. And so often he's got good gifts that he wants to give us, but we're not asking. Somebody who went to heaven said Jesus took him to this really strange room, and there were all sorts of body parts in this room. (laughs) 
He's like, yeah, these are, these are body parts that I've wanted to give in healing, for healing. But people didn't ask. There's like a big warehouse of body parts in heaven. New colons, new hearts, new lungs, new brains, new legs, new arms. People just haven't asked. You know? It's pretty, pretty wild, right? <laughs> but not just body parts, right? Like how about all sorts of charismatic gifts for evangelization, right? Preaching, teaching, healing, administration, generosity, <laughs> Right? Understanding wisdom, miracles of whatever, right? There's all kinds of gifts. You know, like a big gift store in heaven, huge, you know, department store with all kinds of gifts that we haven't asked for. You know, we don't go shopping in heaven enough, right? <laughs> so let's go shopping in heaven. That would be a neat oper- that would be a neat activity to do, right? We could organize a, a shopping spree to heaven. You know, that'd be for the school, that would be really cool, right? Kids, let's go shopping in heaven today. Yeah, but again, you know, we, we think, we poo-poo that stuff, but, I mean, God is so much bigger than we are. And again, I think we often put him in a box and we stifle our imagination and, and we don't dream enough. We don't dream enough. God wants us to dream. He wants to dream about wants us to dream about the miracles that you know he wants to work through us and with us and in us in our home in our community in our country in our world in his church but again do we have that ache in our hearts you know the ache of a mother for her child that's why the, the prayers of a mother are so powerful, because your hearts ache so much for your children. Well, we have to have that same ache for our neighbor, that neighbor who drives us nuts, who's really weird, who's really strange. You know, you got to pray for that, right? Ask God to help you see that crazy neighbor of yours or that crazy uncle or cousin or whatever, you know, sister or brother. Ask God to help you see that person the way that he sees them and to develop, to foster that ache for your brothers and sisters who are suffering, no doubt. And then let's ask God, God, use me. Use me, God. Give me gifts. Give me the words. Give me the power. Give me whatever it takes to move mountains. to build up, not to tear down, to be constructive, to be inspiring. Help me to be all you created me to be, whatever that looks like. Help me to be all that you created me to be. As Matthew Kelly likes to say, to, you know, to become the best version of myself, which is just another way of saying to be a saint, you know, to love in a heroic way, to love in a heroic way. To love the way that Jesus loved us.